Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great, man. I am happy to be talking about movies. No, not movies. The movie, The Snyder Cut, with Sonny Bunch and Alyssa Rosenberg. I'm so excited. We're not there yet. First up in controversies and non-troversies, Borat, subsequent movie film, long subtitle that I am not looking up on general principle, is a surprise <laughs> award season favorite, racking up nominations and wins for actor Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays the titular Kazakh, and Maria Bakalova, who plays Borat's daughter. Uh, strangely, the largely improvised film, which, like the first, relies on tricking unwilling dupes into embarrassing themselves on film, preying upon America's almost painful politeness to foreigners, has also been racking up nominations for adapted screenplay, most recently capturing the Writers Guild Association's trophy. Uh, the film's Oscar campaign seems mostly to be predicated upon trying to remind people of Cohen's brave struggle against Donald Trump and his minions. These filmmakers were truly the last line of defense between us and another four years of the Donald. And, and on the press trail this week, the producer claimed that Rudy Giuliani tried to get the filmmakers arrested for extortion. Uh, Rudy, quote, claimed we were trying to extort him at the time, which we, when we didn't ask for anything, uh, end quote, producer Monica Levinson said, uh, quote, this is Levinson again, he called all of his New York City cops and said extortion, which was a federal crime. Very smart to bring that up, end quote. Uh, Peter, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I'm, I'm just curious if, if you agree with me uh, that this is obviously and almost grotesquely an effort to keep these heroes of the, the resistance in mind as award season rolls around. Uh, what is the best way to honor their efforts, if not by showering them with trophies for, among other things, writing an improvised screenplay? Well, I guess that's one way to do it. It might not be my first choice or my third. Um, look, Sonny, I, we both know why this movie is is getting awards uh, nominations. And it's it's the combination of slim pickings because of COVID. And then the fact that this movie is just framed as a kind of COVID era attack on, on the Trump rubes. Um, I don't think it's quite an awful movie. I didn't think it was great, though. Um, I, I didn't really love it. Uh, and I, I, I think that it's being it is just sort of it's a it's a canonical example of uh, awards going to a film not for the qualities of the film, but for the political uh, motivations of, of of the movie for for sort of just for political reasons. And I don't even mean sort of like inside awards baseball politics. I just mean the straight up national partisan politics of it. And it is it, it just sort of strikes me as a as as an indictment of of Hollywood's awards uh, and the way that they go about this in which, yes, there are films of real artistic achievement that are that are nominated, uh, that win on a regular basis. But also just as often there are films that are just clearly there because they kind of they scratch the political itches of the people who are who are making the nominations and nothing else. And I, I just like Borat. If there's something impressive about it, I will say this. It's that they managed to shoot and produce a film that basically holds together, that isn't a complete uh, you know, disaster in terms of craft during, uh, during lockdowns. That is in its own way impressive. It's sort of a, it's an interesting artifact of COVID cinema. 
but it's not a very good movie. And it's not a very good movie in even in comparison to the first one, which was this genuine sort of shock uh, and and just sort of bowled me over. I, I, I wrote a, an absolute rave of the first one because I thought it was a, a really great um, really kind of delightful movie. And this one just isn't that great. But what it does is it flatters the people who are making the awards nominations. It flatters their their uh, political sensibilities. Um, and it sort of sa- it says, look, if you if you hold me up and say, I'm a great movie, then you will that will reflect back on you. And I think that's just such a bad way to talk about art and to conduct the whole sort of the awards season uh, you know, circus. It's also, it it's also just a weird choice because if what you want to do is reward Sacha Baron Cohen for being outspoken about the Trump administration and a defender of sort of true American values, vote for him for his performance as Abby Hoffman in the trial of Chicago seven. Um, Oh, he's getting, I mean, he's getting tons of love for that too, though, is the thing like the, 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 the amount of love that Sasha Baron Cohen gets from the awards season bodies is totally baffling to me. No. And I actually think, I mean, I I think that would make more sense. It's, it's, I mean, I have issues with that movie in some ways, but it's a much better made, it's a really interesting and impressive movie in some ways, even if it's politics are, you know, attempts to put, you know, 2000s era, uh, D triple C politics like against the trial of the Chicago seven, which is like, come on, Sorkin. And his performance in it is interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a defense of the role of radicalism in left politics um, and a defense of radicals in particular, um, especially those who are sort of trying like the yippies were to really blow up uh, not just sort of centrist politics, but a sense of American conventionality as people who were not just sort of sloppy and self-indulgent, but were operating from a place of intellectual seriousness, which is sort of a, you know, I'm not sure I 100% buy that argument. It's probably more true of Abby Hoffman than Jerry Rubin. Um, But it is the more sort of interesting, salient performance on that score. But I, I mean, I think that part of what is weird about these screenwriting awards for this, which, you know, the Academy Awards are the nominations which are filtered through the specific branches of the Academy. The specific award we're talking about here is a Writers Guild Award. Is it? It does feel like everyone trying to have their say in the general direction Sunny described, even when it's sort of a weird commentary on your own craft to describe a largely improvised movie as an adapted screenplay. Um, it well, seems so, like a, it's well, sort of so, a self-abnegating decision. I mean, yeah. It, so I mean, doesn't the, that also tell us how how much Borat is is shaped, right? And so they present these scenes as if they're real in some sense. But you know, there was that Rudy Giuliani scene that made a bunch of hay, and we could like the the, the pants pulling down situation or or not. Like we could get into that, but I don't think we need to. But if you watch that whole sequence and you watch it really carefully with an editor's eye. One of the things you notice is that a bunch of the kind of the laugh lines, which are, you know, the the kind of vulgar things that Rudy Giuliani appears to be reacting to. They're cutaways to where you can't see Rudy Giuliani and they're cutting into Borat saying something that he clearly never actually said to Rudy. And then using a different reaction. I mean, it's space goes coast to coast level uh, uh, editing there. And in some ways you think this is it's in some ways it's quite clever, right? Um, 
it is it's pretty naturalistic the way that they have inserted stuff that didn't happen with. But that's the case for an editing award, did, not a right? writing one. Yes, it's yes, that's it. Um, but it's also it's it's shaped right. It's it's turned into a story and into a scene, um, and you know. But in some ways, that just sort of it is it is a to me it is an acknowledgement of how fake this sort of hypothetically real movie is um, like not just in the sense that we all know that some of it is staged and that Borat himself is a creation, but that all of these scenes that are supposedly featuring real people with real reactions, many of them have just been kind of ha have been constructed out of material that didn't actually happen uh, synchronously and has been put together after the fact. And the people in the, in the movie have no idea um, how would it, you know, sort of, it's not just that they have no idea that they're on camera. It's they're never hearing or seeing the lines that we see being fed to them, that they are on screen being portrayed as responding to. Yeah, I my my issue uh, with this movie, I I, I mean, I, I, I laid out my issues with this movie in, in my little my little spiel there at the beginning. I have a lot of issues with this and and its predecessor. Uh, but the 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 question about the, the script writing in particular is an interesting one because it, you know, uh, on the one hand, it, it, it kind of undercuts the uh, the the verite of it all. But on the other hand, you should you you should have no expectation of verite in something like this. There's no reason to expect this to be a real uh, thing that is happening. What, what what it does to me, what it does for me is it introduces confusion into what is an actual reaction that we are supposed to laugh at because it's a funny thing that some rube is getting, you know, the wool pulled over his eyes on. And what is actually totally constructed? What is actually totally fake? Like I, I, you know, when I'm when I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking about it winning best screenplay, all I can think about is the segment at the end, Peter. And you you had mentioned this before we started rolling. The the segment at the end with the uh, folks who are living in the COVID uh, lockdown. Like how much of that is real? How much of that is fake? Like are those even actors? Are those are those real people? Are they not real people? I like. I, My understanding I'm is that he it, actually did spend a couple of days living with those folks I, and no, not breaking no, character I, the whole I'm time. Not, I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not looking for an actual answer here because my point is that like the actual answer doesn't matter because it 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 changes how I perceive the whole thing. And if you don't understand, you know what is written and what isn't, uh, and if you if you can't have any expectation of what is what is a real reaction and what isn't, it undermines the whole like the the kind of concept of the whole thing. Am I wrong? Am I or am I am I just am I am I just being persnickety because I don't like this style of humor? I, I again, I like the first film quite a bit, but I think once you see what they're doing and once the seams start to show, the humor is predicated on the notion that it is in some sense portraying something real. And right. there's so, so little that is meaningfully, substantially real in this movie in particular uh, that it becomes less funny and therefore sort of defeats the purpose of this movie that is, at least in theory, there to make you laugh, there to make you guffaw, right? It's it's supposed to be entertaining. Um, and I did not laugh very many times while watching this movie. I did not guffaw once. Uh, Alyssa, I don't, I don't know about you. Um, I, uh, I, well, I don't know. What do we think here? Is this, a, is it a controversy or a controversy that Borat to subsequent subtitle, uh, is nominated for best adapted screenplay in all of these awards? Alyssa. It's controversial that Hollywood writers don't have more self-respect. 
Peter. It's controversial in one sense, which is that it's just sort of obviously self-dealing. Um, and it's non-controversial in the sense that so are awards all the time. I mean, the award season is just such a, an exercise in shameless navel-gazing. And this, in some ways, is no different. Uh, it's a controversy. And the first one getting nominated for an Oscar was also a controversy. I still can't believe that that happened. Todd Phillips' first Oscar nomination was uh, as, a, as a writer on the, the first one, just FYI, the, who would go on to great, create and direct, of course, The Great Joker uh, of last year. Um, all right. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members only episode about the public's appetite for COVID related films following the end of the, the lockdowns. This movie may come up, Borat too. Uh, do we really want to see a bunch of movies where people interact via Zoom or would we rather die? I think I know what I'd pick. Uh, now on to the main event. And guys, it's a big one. Some would say the biggest main event in the history of this show, a four hour main event, a main event that has been four years in the making, a main event that many people thought would never, ever, ever happen. That's right. It's time to talk about the Snyder Cut, folks. Uh, look, here's all you need to know about the Snyder Cut the backstory to it anyway. Back in 2017, Warner Brothers released a version of Justice League that had been mutilated by Joss Whedon because Warners wanted the film to be A, under two hours long, and B, more like a Marvel movie. This was a horrifying mistake on literally every level, from the fact that Whedon's preferred mise-en-scene more closely resembles an NBC single-camera sitcom than an epic superhero movie, uh, to the fact that his brand of dopey humor has no purchase in the Snyder-verse. Uh, that is not to say that Zack Snyder's films are without humor, from 300 to Dawn of the Dead to Watchmen to the Snyder Cut itself. There's a strain of darkly mordant comedy in all of them. Uh, but these films are big and serious, folks. We are here for big, serious stuff. Uh, and none is more serious than the Snyder Cut of Justice League, which begins with a minutes-long death scream by Superman that reverberates around the world, including uh, it, there's also an Icelandic dirge uh, following a visit by Aquaman to some sort of, I don't, some, some, I don't know, town. It's a town somewhere. And uh, a, hamlet. The, the, a hamlet, a hamlet, if you will. Um, and uh, there, there, are, there are weird little choices. For instance, uh, Joss Whedon had Flash pushing a truck really fast in the, in the original theatrical cut to save a handful of unnamed Russians from some uh, CGI monsters. Uh, whereas in this movie, Flash literally outruns death by traversing the speed of light. It's amazing. Uh, and I don't know why you would change that out of this. Every single thing about the Snyder Cut is better than the Whedon Cut. Uh, and even if there's a version of this movie, the Snyder Cut, that's better because it's probably 30 or 40 minutes shorter. And I think there probably is, even though I adore every single second of this bad boy. Could have been trimmed a little bit. I don't want it. I want this. I want the pure, uncut, slow-mo infused, every shot of painting, Zack Snyder action. Uh, I haven't even talked about Cyborg's storyline. I think that Peter wanted to handle that. So I'll kick it over to him. Uh, Peter, tell me about Cyborg and also try to burst my bubble. What? Take away my joy. Be a thief of joy. No, no. I mean, I, I do think that it's just incredible that he took this movie about a bunch of superheroes saving the world and turned it into a movie about Cyborg's like kind of sad relationship with his father. And it's it's. It's such like a, a little intimate character drama here at, you know, the, the four hour version, it's it's small in scale. It's nuanced. It's almost sort of, you know, it's it's like Minari. Right. Except for for cyber, for like people who are part robot. 
Um, yeah. And, so and I just, I really so appreciated that this was, a, that this was ultimately a, a little family drama about a, about a dad who put together his dead son with a science fiction like murder life giving reality shaping box it's the and, mother and, like, box. brought him back treat it with respect yeah, right and brought him back and then they had some arguments about whether that was good or not and then you know look i no i am um, actually I, the, the cyborg story is the cyborg story in this in this movie is interesting like everything in this movie i did not love it like you loved it but I thought it was fascinating to watch um, just because just because how often do we get to see something like this? This is this is a, a director's completely unrestrained vision. It's not quite the assembly cut. Right. I mean, I think Snyder actually said that there was an assembly cut of this version that was closer to five hours long, which, oh, man, Sonny. Sonny, when are we gonna when are we gonna get the campaign to release that version of this? The fact uh, that there's an hour of this movie on the floor somewhere is an injustice <laughs> that we will one day rectify. Don't you worry. Injustice, yes, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, no, I I just I I hated the original. I just thought it was a travesty. It's one of the worst studio movies of the last decade, along with uh, Rise of Skywalker. Just an absolute disaster on every level. And what's fascinating is how, in some ways, this movie follows the contours of the Whedon version, right? The story is fundamentally the same. It's just been fleshed out and re and sort of rebuilt and reimagined, right? Uh, the, the, the final action sequence um, looks very different. It has a bunch of different beats. The the funny Russians who, man, they were so funny. I just, I really miss Ugh. the funny Russian. No, nobody misses the funny Russian family. Ugh. Nobody misses the, the goofy speech. I literally plane, didn't right? remember that they existed. Um, <laughs> and, and I am I like, to me, this is just a this is an example of the power and virtue of streaming of, of streaming services, because this movie cannot exist in this particular form uh, on the big screen. There is no way that the four hour and two minute version uh, with like a 20 minute epilogue featuring like a, a whole lot of like semi like almost black and white you know it's like a whatever that tan and gold and black color scheme and the final nightmare sequence with like nightmare. joker just like rambling a, a bunch kind of like uh, for 10 minutes before evil superman shows up like there is just no way that this movie makes it to a big screen at all we would like we would never be able to see something like this if not for the streaming era and it is it's just a kind of fascinating product of what you can do when the constraints of the feature, the sort of traditional feature film format and the two to two and a half hour movie that you go to a theater to see are, are removed. And we sometimes talk about the things that we lose when we lose the cinematic experience. But we have gained something that I think is really interesting and really novel. I'm not sure I want every movie to be like this. Sorry, Sonny. What? But I think this is it's just a it's a fascinating um look into into what a director will do when all of those constraints are gone and i i'm glad that it exists um and i think it's just obviously a a more cohesive uh coherent and more interesting film than the theatrical cut uh Alyssa, what did you make of the snyder cut um, i wanted to piggyback on something peter said because i think um there is a tendency when people talk about 
auteurism in cinema um, and specifically the idea that sort of the director is sort of the full author of the film and that auteurs have a very sort of distinctive style. There's a tendency to only apply that label to a certain kind of like kind of arty director. And as I have discussed with the two of you, I actually think Zack Snyder and Michael Bay are probably the two most important auteurs of American cinema in the last 20 years, um, yeah. in that they are people who have an incredibly distinctive um, visual aesthetic sense of con- uh, set of concerns. Um, I mean, you see a Zack Snyder or a Michael Bay movie on screen and you instantly recognize what it is, whether it's sort of the washout color palette um, for Snyder, the sort of lens flares for Bay. Um, and I, I think that is the sort of unwillingness to recognize them as such is sort of fascinating to me. And that plays into both what I really liked about this movie and what I really didn't like about it. Um, to start with the latter, I just don't care for Zack Snyder's action scenes very much. I think occasionally his style can be effective. Um, it's really effective with Wonder Woman, for example. Um, and he, the way he uses time, much like the Wachowskis did in The Matrix, um, you know, sort of speeding things up, slowing them down is very good at communicating the extent to which characters like Wonder Woman, Woman, Superman, and The Flash are just operating in a different reality than other people. Um, I think that it's no mistake that the um, big chase sequence set on Themyscira works pretty well visually, in part because you can see more of it. It is just, it is shot in, you know, it's set in daylight. You can see more of what's happening. You can sort of see the mother box being handed Amazon to Amazon um, in a way that's quite effective. I don't care for a lot of these super dark, let's shoot people with guns, video game aesthetic of some of the latter fight scenes. They just don't do a lot for me. And I think that's partially because I am someone who really prioritizes kind of action choreography and the sense of a fight as kind of a dance or an exchange um, in action sequences. That is just what's most interesting to me. It's one of the reasons that, you know, the... um, the folks who did the second unit work for Captain America, the Winter Soldier, I think have always done sort of a great job of that kind of conversation playing out in action. And I don't think that's something that Snyder prioritizes or is terribly interested in for the most part, um, or at least he doesn't prioritize it when it kind of conflicts with the larger aesthetic. But what I do really like about this movie is it's a character story in a lot of ways. And it is specifically and well done in this sense, a story about characters who feel isolated from their families and are grieving that in a really profound way. Um, You have Batman, who is, of course, an orphan who has this sort of surrogate relationship with Alfred that is important, but not a replacement for your actual birth parents. You have the Flash, whose dad is incarcerated. You have Cyborg, who, as you know, as we learn in this much more well-developed backstory, was incredibly close to his mother and estranged from his father, and whose mother died in a car crash that was caused by an argument about his father's absence. Um, you have Diana, who is living separately from the Amazons and, you know, has lost Steve Trevor, the love of her life. Um, and you have Aquaman, who feels incredibly wounded by his mother's absence. Um, and then you have the sort of extended Kent family, in which I include Lois Lane, uh, where you have two women who are effectively widows, Um and a man who is mourning the loss of his father and also the sort of larger family that he lost when Krypton was destroyed. And I think that Snyder, in the Snyder Cut, the movie just does a nice job of letting all of those emotions breathe and letting 
both male and female characters feel and express a lot of pain and ambivalent emotions. And that's actually not something you see in action movies a lot. Um, It's not something you see in American movies a lot. Men are not allowed to be complicated or made weak by their emotions as they are here. Um, And the movie, you know, it uses the plot mechanics really effectively, both to get the characters to deal on some level with those issues and if not move on from them entirely, move into the next phase of their lives. And I think it works incredibly well in that regard, um, even if I don't love it as an action movie. I I, w- I want to touch on uh, Alyssa's point about auteurism for a moment because auteur is a, a word that has kind of lost meaning in our in our modern conversation about films and filmmaking. But the original like French version of of the word, the auteur theory, was about directors working within the studio system and putting their own personal stamps and flourishes on them, right? Um, and in that sense guys like Zack Snyder and Michael Bay are like the actual purest version of that auteur theory in modern times. The, the people who are working on these kind of these, these, what, what people would describe as nothing more than product, right? Your big transformers movies, your big DC comics movies, et cetera, et cetera. And they're putting their own personal stamp on them, whether it's aesthetic or ideological or both. Um, you know, I, I said in my review that I, I, I am of the opinion that, uh, that Zack Snyder and Terrence Malick are more alike than they are dissimilar in the sense that they are they are fusing their kind of ideological ideas, their philosophical ideas with the form of the film that they're making. It's not it's not I'm not saying that their movies look alike or that they are similar in in uh, in that sense. But they but they are they are they are working in a way that kind of. Uh, melds ideas and and visual imagery uh, in a way in a way that very few other directors I, again outside of like I don't know uh, Michael Bay are doing um, and and that brings Which me Chris to my Grinnell second point in this camp as well but uh, that brings me to my I, I see I, I, I this is a conversation for another time um, I I I, uh, I, I want to bring I want to bring this to my second point which is again about uh, the idea of auteurism and the idea of a, a director putting their own visual stamp on things and there's there's there was a great video floating around Twitter uh, this this weekend comparing the two scenes with Martha uh, Kent uh, played by uh, Diane Lane in this movie and uh, Lois Lane played by Amy Adams and in the in the Snyder version, it's it's set in Amy Adams's apartment in Lois Lane's apartment. Uh, it's very it's very darkly lit. It looks like no apartment you've ever been in. It's like an apartment with like dust and smoke filtering through it. And there's not really any light. Uh, and it's kind of dark and sepia toned and all that. And then the in the in the Zack Snyder version, it takes place at it, in the Daily Planet break room. And again, it's lit like it's literally it looked like a, an outtake from the office that they they hadn't done like post-production work on. I mean, it, it was just super bright and awful and terrible and everything is bad you about mean in it. The Whedon version in the Whedon version. Sorry, in the Whedon version. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, unless we besmirch Zack Snyder's name. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, in, in the Whedon version, the Whedon version, again, it looks it looks like a sitcom. It's shot like a sitcom. It's flat and it's it's boring and it's basic. And it is. As Peter says, this is like a really fascinating just just from a pure film film fan filmmaking, looking at what happens in the process of making movies experiment here, because you have essentially the same scene played twice by two different directors. And one looks incredibly different from the other. And you can just viscerally tell and which is one which. looks good. <laughs> one looks good and one looks bad. I mean, look, I, I give Joss Whedon a lot of a lot of crap and he deserves all of it. Um, uh, but the, but you know, the, 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 there is an actual like 
literal difference between they almost they look like they feel different. Like it's like the difference between looking at vellum paper and regular paper. You're like, oh, that's that's like fancy. And this is not fancy. And I, I don't know what I don't know what I don't I, I don't honestly like know any other way to put it other than just like this looks better. It looks be- it looks more dramatic. It's better lit. It's better frame. Yeah, I watched that and I just wondered why in the world did Whedon reshoot that scene of of all the scenes to reshoot? And I mean, I so he can insert because... an alien probe joke sure. into. I I like I like. There's this movie. The Whedon version is stuffed full of terrible Whedon humor. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean it. No, no. I, I mean, and, you know, part of it, is, I, I wonder, it's probably because they want to add in a, a joke or two. But I also wonder if it's that the studio demanded it. So one of the things we learned about um, the Snyder Cut was that the reason that uh, uh, Steppenwolf, who is the main villain in who's sort of the primary villain here, but with Darkseid behind him in the in the. Uh, the Snyder version, and then in the Whedon vi- uh, version is the only villain. And in the Whedon version, Steppenwolf has this sort of like old man kind of wrinkly face and some armor that looks a little bit sort of Nordic Vikingy. And in the Snyder version, he's like alien and bizarre and his armor is super shiny and really spiky and mean. He looks like something off of the cover of a heavy metal album, right? Except like weirder and cooler and more alien. Um, and like, I'm not sure I love the, the Snyder design for Steppenwolf, but it's extremely distinctive. And one of the things we learned is that he had the effects team totally redo all of these effects back to the original design because the studio had at some point in the process, I think if I understand correctly, while Snyder was still at least nominally attached to the film, looked at the original design that Snyder had approved, had wanted and said, wait, that looks too mean or too dark or something like that. And since they were trying to push this film in a more Marvel like more sort of, um, funny, friendly uh, direction. They just changed the design to something that looked like kind of bad and worse, but it didn't look quite as scary. And that scene with, uh, you know, the, the scene that we're talking about, you know, where we were comparing the two versions, the darker version, the Snyder version feels just sort of moodier tonally, right? It feels scary. And I wonder if that's not just Joss what? Whedon being told, uh, you know, sort of thinking, oh, I want to put in my my probe joke. I wonder if it's also the studio saying, let's just physically lighten this up a bunch. And what you end up with is a movie where a bunch of the new scenes look like their, their TV sitcoms. And that scene in particular, I mean, works better to underscore the character's collective grief, right? And I also thought, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about before the podcast, it's very interesting that the movie pointedly, but not quite explicitly, makes pretty clear that Lois Lane is pregnant. Um, and with the, the super baby, super the, baby. Well, I'm sorry. The I mean, people have been looking at all the Easter eggs in this movie, including the Alice Shrugged inspired uh, newspaper headline, um, which is hilarious. But force majeure pregnancy tests is like the funniest thing I can imagine, right? Because a force majeure is, I mean, it's not quite an act of God, but it's like an irresistible force, right? And so the implication is like. Superman's just really, really fertile. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it is, it works really well thematically. It makes it clearer why Lois is so, like, it underscores Lois's grief and the immensity of the loss. But it also, you know, when Bruce Wayne kind of confirms it at the end of the movie by, you know, telling Clark Kent, congratulations, by the way, when they're at the farm, 
you know, it underscores the movie's um, message that this is about people building a family and finding a way to sort of recover from their losses together. Um, and again, it's just, I mean, people talk about Snyder and this version of the movie as being sort of more grown up in the sense that it's like darker and people swear and there's like more explicit violence. But there's also, you know, the fact that you have suddenly an explicit point point that's like two of these characters had sex and they're going to have a baby is a you know a sentiment that is just totally missing from the marvel cinematic universe with the exception of like the one weird scene where black widow talks to the hulk about like her hysterectomy when she you know graduated to full agent and you know ross daffet uh who i think was sort of a mutual friend of everybody on here had an interesting column today about the disappearance of sex and romance from movies um and I think it's it's very interesting to see, even in a sort of subtle way, you know, sex and the adult responsibilities that come with it kind of making their way back into a superhero movie here. I mean, yeah, I mean, these I, movies I, are so much more adult in the way they approach superhero relationships and superhero psychology than Marvel's in some ways. I'm not saying that I think that's necessarily better. But he is interested in sort of classic, let's just call them adult themes of yeah. loss of like of trial and betrayal um of of genuine hardness all right and he's he does this interesting thing where he takes his his superheroes who are on the one hand these godlike figures and in in Snyder, Snyder's vision is of them as effectively new gods who have come to maybe rule over us and that's the the question that his movies always ask about superheroes is what do we do about people who are effectively gods, right? When they show up in physical reality, what are we going to do about that? Um, and then he says, but there's still people too. And they are still struggling with, with, with things that are human. And, and you know, in some ways it, his, his vision goes back to Greek myths, right? Um, it is a, it is a very mythological vision of, of superheroes and how they might interact both with each other and with the normal human populace. Uh, I mean, I, 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 somebody was arguing with me on, on Twitter today, which is a terrible thing to do. Never, never argue with anyone on Twitter, but somebody was, somebody was trying to, you know, say, oh, you know, that scene with Martha and Lois in the Snyder version is so bad because when it ends, it's, it, it's revealed that, uh, Martha Kent was actually the Martian Manhunter and he, he was trying to trick Lois into, you know, getting back in the game and that takes away all our agency. And I was like, look, man, uh, I don't know what movies you've been watching. But these are all movies about how how humans would react to gods being real. And if you can't see the mythological uh, imperative of a trickster god pretending to be somebody else to nudge humanity in a, in a different direction, you're just not you're, you need to go back and read some Greek myths. Uh, look here. So here's here's the big question. Will uh, do we do we think that Warner Brothers is going to allow Zack Snyder to keep making these movies or are they, are they done? I, my, I'll just lay my, uh, my, my opinion out first and let you guys respond. I, I, my, my take is that this is it. No more Zack Snyder DC movies. Zack Snyder has basically said as much that he has no uh, real interest in doing it anymore. Ray Fisher is done as cyborg. He, he like refuses to work with the studio anymore uh, due to, due to some, some issues there. Uh, revolving around Joss Whedon and, and race uh, the 
the studio head and Sarnoff came out today and she said, you know, no, we're not doing any more of these. There's not going to be an A or cut of Suicide Squad. Uh, we've, we've let Zack Snyder have his trilogy that ends before there's any real end to any of it, but fine, whatever. Uh, and, and on top of all of this, you know, DC and Warner Brothers have been very explicitly rolling out uh, news stories about Superman movies that have nothing to do with Zack Snyder. There's going to be a ton of Hesse Coates Superman movie. I'm sure that's going to be amazing. Uh, and there's going to be a Blue Beetle movie, and there's going to be a Zatanna movie directed by Emerald Fennel. Uh, Alyssa, I know you have thoughts on this this particular move. Um, uh, so I, I think it looks like things are just about done here, right? I think that's right. Um and I think it's honestly okay. I think this was a really interesting experiment and sort of counterweight to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but I also think these movies are and these franchises are draining for the filmmakers to make. I think they are incredibly time consuming. They involve a lot of moving parts and corporate pressure. And frankly, I'm not really interested in the studio approved version of whatever Snyder was going to do with this next, right? I... I just cannot, there's no world in which, you know, we're getting a four hour theatrical re release of a nightmare movie, which as much as like, I would enjoy being able to spend a whole afternoon at the movies with an intermission for lunch or whatever. I just, I just don't think it's happening. And you know what? I would sort of, I'm more interested to see, you know, the next sucker punch original movie from Zack and Deborah Snyder than I am from seeing another sort of franchise filtered thing. Army of the Dead coming soon to Netflix. Yes. Tignatara and Dave Bautista rob a bank and aliens. In, and, and, in the and zombie zombies, apocalypse. Zombies, in the zombie apocalypse. I'm I'm legitimately, like, I think that will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. I'll yeah, be curious exciting. to see what Snyder does next outside of the superhero realm. And, um, you know, I, I think he had his run. I think this is the capstone to it. We get to see what he would have done with no, no limits and in some ways no strings attached. I mean, they gave him a ton of money, um, which the vast majority of which is right? like $70 million to redo this. Uh, there, I, if I understand correctly, there were only three days of additional shooting, which means that basically all of it went to paying, uh, you know, technical talent, right? Effects work, editors, uh, new score, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this shows us what he was getting at. Honestly, I don't think that his vision is super commercial. Um, or a commercial enough, even though there are clearly a core of diehard fans. Uh, and it's frankly also not exactly my cup of tea. Um, I, I, it is, like I said, I think it's a very interesting movie. I'm still not sure it's a good one. It's much more cogent. It's a much, it's a much, just a much better film on nearly every level than the Whedon version. Um, but I also don't think it particularly honors the spirit of the superheroes that it's about. Um, and I think it's, it's sort of ploddingly paced. I don't love the action scenes, uh, as as Alyssa said. Not just, you know, they're sort of, Snyder's just way too interested for my taste in godlike displays of power kind of on their own, right? Rather than like in the exchange of movement and the, you know, the, the flitting back and forth, right? In an exchange, like an action scene should be an exchange of ideas in some ways. It's a kind of conversation. And he doesn't want that. He just sort of wants the posing. And that's interesting. And it can kind of look neat, um, but I don't ultimately love it. And I also just don't, I think his visual aesthetic is very striking, but I don't love it. As we've talked about before, I think his effects work, um, you saw, you know, I will, I will single out the doomsday sequence at the end of Batman versus Superman, which 
I can see how, you know, pre-production um, art on that would have looked interesting and, and been like, wow, that's cool. I think it came out looking like garbage. It's It looks like expensive garbage. It looks like really fussed over garbage, but it looks like garbage. And I think that there's still some of that in uh, in the Snyder Cut of Justice League as well, because he just sort of he likes these very painterly, um, very computer generated action sequences and, and not just action sequences, shots, right, that just don't look real in any meaningful way and in some ways don't attempt to look real. I don't love it. I don't think that this is what audiences particularly want at this point. Again, outside of a core of, of kind of Snyder fans, outside of Sonny Bunch, right? Um, and I think DC is going to end up going in a We are direction. legion. Yeah, it's going to go in a much worse direction. All right. Uh, so what do we what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the Snyder cut? Alyssa. It's a really enjoyable way to spend a free afternoon. Thumbs up. Peter. I want to give it thumbs up as a streaming era experiment, but not actually as a movie on its own. That doesn't, uh, that's so, not so, really an so answer. I, I like, it's worth thumbs watching. Up. It's worth watching and I'm glad it exists. I'm glad I watched it. I don't think it's a good okay. movie. So thumbs up. All right, good. <laughs> thumbs up for me too. Three thumbs ups. Perfect. Everyone approves of the Snyder Cut. All right. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it as much as you love the Snyder Cut, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode uh, about the COVID aesthetic at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.